I bet you loved your postprandial exercise. Go back to pulpus spit where you belong. You're listening to Scary Stories from Camp Roanoke. This is a podcast where we sift through all the spooky stories of the world and find Mm -hmm. cherry pick for you the ones we like the best or the ones that are the easiest that week. My name is Katie Wiggins. (laughs) I'm Morgan Campbell. Today's no different. Have you been continuing? Oh my god. (laughs) I saw him briefly out in the background. My boyfriend just walked into the room and scared the ever-living god out of me. I thought he was like the deer monster in the movie The Ritual. Wow. You really don't expect something over six feet tall to just like bound into your periphery. That really, that really, that really didn't. a person. I really, really didn't like that. I did learn something spooky recently. What's that? Have you heard of death masks? <sighs> Morgan, I have a long... <laughs> I'm sure you have. ...loving history <laughs> with death masks. I literally... There's probably a tab open on my phone this very moment <laughs> that is about the history of Marie Tussaud, who started, like, the wax figures... Mm-hmm. Because of death, death masks from the French Revolution. Because people really wanted to cool. see, you know, this was in a time before social media. And people really wanted to see their leaders beheaded. So she took the death masks of the people and then, like, reanimated them to look like what they looked like um, beheaded. So That's so neat. Yeah, I love death masks. I love them. Because there's there's hundreds of years old and before photography and and when all you have is paintings of a person or etchings, you don't really get a sense of what they actually mm -hmm. look like. And then you're like, wow, Robespierre really did have pockmarks on his cheeks. Like, wow, Marie Antoinette really did have like a very high forehead. Like it's it's I love death masks. It is so fascinating. And they're still doing it. Really? There was a man in 2007 in Texas who was... um, he was on death row and an artist asked him if he wanted his death his death mask done and he was like it would be an honor. Ugh. So when when he was killed they they did his death mask. Yeah. Maybe there's a museum or something we can go to <gasps> that will have like a bunch of death masks and that stuff. That would be so amazing. Yeah. It's so fascinating. If you guys haven't heard of it, if you have read up on it it's so so fascinating yeah it's basically like the origin of the history of wax figures <laughs> so cool yeah it's i want to go so to dope. one of those museums that's like this is a baby with two skulls in a jar like i don't know i love it i feel like that would be a, a well-spent afternoon <laughs> speaking of um Babies with two heads in jars? Uh, Not quite. Royalty. (laughs) Speaking of royalty, uh, I just watched last night, I watched The Madness of King George, uh, which is a, I think, maybe early 90s film about King George III. And I loved it so much. I feel like I went on this journey with historical you know shit where you start out when you're like an early when you're a kid or a tween and you go for like very sugary and very Mm. like fantastical versions of royalty like the movie the young victoria where it's like oh everyone's so attractive and the light is so romantic and they have this love story and everything is so just like you know kind of fantastical and Mm -hmm. and enhanced And then as I got older, I was like, became increasingly disillusioned with those movies and wanted something grittier and realer and more gross because that's what's true. Mm -hmm. And uh, the madness of King George really was that. Like, instead of like, you know, the music and the direction and the like the filters that they put on the movie to make it look like Mm. warm and glowing and incredible. When you take all that away and you just have like what looks like a filmed version of 
reality in the past. It makes Mm -hmm. monarchy and all of those rituals and all those behaviors seem so much more ridiculous and insane that people did that. And I love that. It like, (laughs) I love authenticity. One of my favorite movies is the red violin and it's in and it shows like a total like non-sentimental vision of like the past and they just like characters just like die and that's it and then they move on and i just love that it's i just am so i just fawn over that completely and king uh the madness of king george was definitely one of those movies it's on hbo (gasps) <gasps> I'm gonna have to watch that today. <sighs> it just—I love that. It that just—it filled my spirit. The man who played King George was such an excellent actor, and it, it was just lovely to see. And and for someone who's like not super familiar with the history of monarchy or any of those things, watching these things is like even more shocking. To be like, people fucking did this, and it's like, yeah, yeah, this was. <laughs> This literally is still <laughs> the way that government works in England right now. Oh. <laughs> you know, like, and people are still yelling in Parliament. Like, that is still a thing that is acceptable to literally yell in their <laughs> house of government. Oh, like, Jesus. people yell and bang on things. It's fucking crazy. I love that. I was reminded on TikTok. Do you remember the show we used to watch? A f- I don't remember her name. Fabulous female comedian would go in different locations and she would replicate different time periods and eat the food and drink the drinks. Oh, um, Sue Perkins? Uh, yes. the uh, You're talking about uh, the, the supersizers go? Yeah, yes! and they would do different eras? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I love that. I love I that show. I need to rewatch it all. Yeah. It's so good. That one's super fun. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what we're going to be doing today is a little bit special. Um, because I got a special package from one of our listeners who sent in this book, Haunted Encounters, Ghost Stories from Around the World. And that listener is Brian. And I'm going to be reading a few of these stories from Ghost Stories from Around the World. Fuck yeah, Brian. I have read lots of books like this and Mm. these stories in particular are really wonderful really well written and i'm really excited to share them with you i'm so excited and this was made in collected in 2004 and it's probably out of print so i doubt anyone who has ever been affiliated with this will give half a shit that (laughs) i am (laughs) reading this um, but it's also a, a ringing endorsement, so it could, under copyright law, be interpreted as advertisement. So, you're welcome. <laughs> so, where's my money? So, pay me. <laughs> okay. Ghost Stories from Around the World, edited by Ginny Sienna Bivona, Mitchell Whittington, and Dorothy McConaughey. I think this was printed in Dallas, Texas. <gasps> oh. be proud morgan it's okay i do not claim dallas well it claims you i technically live in plano plano texas do you claim plano no (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that's so funny i don't i mean i'm i'm not an austinite and i i mean i live in austin but i don't the other day we were picking up dinner and the little corner was the most fucking Austin little corner in the universe. It was, we were picking up soup, of course, from mm-hmm. a place called the Soup Peddler, which is a great place to get soup. Adorable. And it's a little like stand thing. It's not a brick and mortar restaurant, which is extremely common in Austin. You huh. would think it would be illegal to have a restaurant. The amount of food trucks <laughs> is just astonishing. Uh, so we have the soup peddler, and then there was a store that was selling handmade Incan shoes. Oh. So there's a handmade shoe store, and then next to that, it was like CBD for your brain, hemp 
Orama. Like it was a hemp, <laughs> it was like a CBD and hemp store. And then there was also, I think, across the street, an herbalist who had a sign that said, "We speak local here." Oh. And I was like, Austin, <laughs> this is too much. <laughs> you took it, it over like the edge day. with the ink and shoe store. <laughs> but I mean, we picked up our soup and we're on our way. What kind of soup did you get? A uh, carrot ginger and <gasps> a, mm. I think it was a, a pesto uh, grilled cheese to go with it. Oof. Yeah, okay. it's, it's really I'm here, good. I'm here for that. Yeah, it was nice. Once again, I partake. I do not claim, uh, but it was. <laughs> and you also cannot throw a rock in Austin without hitting a chiropractic school. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Yes. Most popped backs per capita. The amount of herbalists and chiropractors here. Very strange. It really isn't if you think about it. That's just the energy. <laughs> okay, so um, so the first story I'll be telling is called The Silent Man. And this was sent in by a woman named Angela Vale. And she's English. And I will be reading them in the appropriate accents. Good. Because people really like that. And also, I really like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to. <laughs> It was curious, the feeling I had of recognition as soon as I saw the house. It was not so much that it was just what we'd been looking for, but a certainty that it belonged to us. It had always belonged to us. That's why we worked so hard to find it. At the time, we were living along the coast of Dunlogair, damn it. Damn it, I should have looked up how to pronounce the Irish. The town, about eight miles from Dublin, where the boat comes in, bringing hordes of summer visitors. We knew we'd outgrown our much-loved cottage when our third daughter, Katie, was born, although we managed fairly well for two more years until we realised that it was either the growing army of Katie's soft toys or us. There simply wasn't room for both. But it was more than the need for space that made us so desperate to find another house. Although we didn't recognise it at the time, it was our house calling to us. As I pulled myself up on the high, rusted iron gate in an attempt to see more clearly, I felt I'd come home, and in spite of the pain of fighting my way with sandaled feet through the vicious brambles and nettles that twisted their way the length of the overgrown garden, I knew that whatever happened, I had to get inside. Then I felt a sudden wave of panic. Suppose if, after all these years of neglect, the house had been spotted by someone else. Suppose even now that someone was signing on the dotted line. For months, the estate agent had been sending us details of unsuitable properties, mostly modern and surrounded by rows of similar houses. But we're looking for something on its own, somewhere with a, a bit of character. I'd hear myself bleating for what felt like the hundredth time. Why couldn't the wretched man understand? He had an annoying habit of tipping his head to one side and giving me a roguish wink, as if to say, trust me, I know what's best for you. Ugh. And now here I was, at the end of a leafy lane, where the only sounds were a distant lawnmower, the old push type, and a solitary bird serenading the fitful sun. No one's been to see this one for months. The winking estate agent had pushed details of the house across his desk to me that morning, following it with a bunch of keys. Might be what you're looking for. Easy enough to find. Straight up the hill from the seafront gardens. He turned away and started taking papers out of a filing cabinet. Plainly, he'd lost interest in us and our quest for something different. If this one isn't right, then... Anyway, there's a kind of lane, trees and bushes leading off the main road. Go along it for a few yards, turn a corner, and right in front of you. It's the first of four old houses, Georgian. Not in a very good state, but you've seen about everything else in your price range. He let his outstretched empty hands finish the sentence, and as I left his office, he didn't bother with his roguish wink. The memory of his words stopped me in my tracks. Price range. The price. I couldn't remember that he'd mentioned it, and there was nothing on the papers I held in my hand. Just a grainy black-and-white photograph of the house, apparently taken in the pouring rain, and managing to reduce its beautiful Georgian lines to those of an old workhouse. 
Now, I'd reached the house and stood on the wide granite step, looking towards the front gate, and could almost see the girls playing there, hearing their laughter as they ran in and out of the trees. There'd be a lawn, a few flower beds, perhaps roses. The man had given me a large bunch of keys, saying without enthusiasm that he thought one or two of them should fit something. I was pleasantly surprised when the first key I tried easily opened the front door, revealing a square hole with the remnants with the remains of an old-fashioned woodblock floor. As I looked towards the stairs, I experienced that same earlier feeling of familiarity with the house, and decided to go up and count bedrooms. Luckily, I looked at the stairs before starting to climb, as several of them were splintered away to almost nothing. So instead, I made for the door at the far end of the hall, which must surely lead to the kitchen and possibly old storerooms. When I opened the door and went down three steps, I first came to a butler's pantry with the lingering smell of apples. Next to it was a large cloakroom, followed by two smaller rooms and a broom cupboard. I made a mental note that if we ever moved in, I must disconnect the bells for summoning the, lo the no longer existing staff. I paused to get the feel of the place, and you were there. Although the first time you were little more than a sensation, the feeling you get when you know someone else is in the room. How long had you been there, waiting for me? Later, there came a time when I visited art galleries and hunted through old prints trying to find where you fitted in. From your clothes, you might have been around for about 150 years, which tied in with the deeds of the house, and probably made you the first tenant. But it wasn't important. You were no ordinary ghost. Happily, in spite of my fears, we managed to get a mortgage and moved in. After a few essential repairs had been carried out by an appallingly inefficient builder. Then came the business of what to call our new home. I don't think that's something that any of my us house. generally consider. <laughs> Who names their house? It's like, all right, we fixed up the place. Now what do we call it? That is, that is not something... <laughs> Sorry, I can't buy the house. I have no name in mind. <laughs> Rebecca. No. <laughs> also, mortgages have come up so often in my recent conversations with people. Mm -hmm. I had the mortgage talk with my dad because I didn't understand how they work. Oh, it, no. It's popping up too much. I'm so sorry. It's okay. <laughs> it's got. There's got to be a YouTube channel for that. <laughs> As the girls pointed out, how can you call a house Mount View when there isn't any mount? And they certainly gave it every chance, balancing, balancing precariously as they peered out of every window. But there wasn't so much as a glimpse of a mount. So Mount View went out, and Lane End came in. Mm. The night of the renaming, I went into the corridor by the butler's pantry to tell you about it, hoping you'd approve. You didn't say anything, but then you never did. And after I'd spoken, you stayed quite still your stillness giving you a reassuring air of self-possession, which was always there until the day you saved Katie's life. All that morning, I'd been aware of your presence close by, each time I went into the kitchen, but for the first time I detected an uneasiness about you, and asked if there was anything I could do to help. As usual, you remained silent, and I continued to feel your disquiet. Then I found myself with too much to do in too short a time, I put lamb chops under the grill for the twins' lunch before strapping Katie into her high chair in the kitchen while I hurried into the sitting room for something. I should have been aware that there was possible danger in the kitchen where the electric cooker was jammed up against the only exit, but I got used to various shortcomings in the old house and no longer worried about them. The moment I went into the sitting room, the phone rang, and as it was a friend I hadn't spoken to for a while, who seemed in need of a friendly ear, I forgot about the lamb chops cooking and Katie sitting in her high chair and settled down for a chat. I heard the twins racing up the gravel drive on their bikes and waited for the front door to be pushed open and for them to come running into the house, shouting each other down, competing for my attention, each wanting to be the first to tell me what had happened that morning at school. At this moment, passions always ran high. It's my turn to tell her. You told her first yesterday. Blows would be exchanged. I promised my friend I'd phone her back and went out into the hall to try and keep the peace. But before either of the girls had a chance to speak, I became aware of someone behind me. 
and turned to see you in the doorway at the end of the hall. Your body was contorted, as though in pain, your mouth open in a silent scream. There was terror in your eyes. I careened headlong past you, smelling smoke, which came swirling out of the kitchen as soon as I opened the door, all but hiding Katie from view. Although she was coughing, she clapped her chubby hands into light at the spectacle of the cooker engulfed in flames. I saw out of the corner of my eye that you were still close by me as I rushed Katie through into the hall and handed her over to her sisters. Take her out into the fresh air, I told them, before hurrying back into the kitchen, where I doused the flames with a washing basket full of damp clothes. Probably not the recommended method, but I didn't have time to think, and, thankfully, it worked. For some days after that, there was no sign of you. Then one Sunday lunchtime, I was in the kitchen, passing plates through the serving hatch into the dining room, when I saw you standing by the dining room window. For some reason, seeing you there unnerved me. Get out of here at once, I bellowed, and a German student who'd recently moved in with us looked dismayed. No, not you. My attempt at an explanation only made things worse, and the student soon made her excuses for returning home. But what was far, far worse was that you went too. No warning, just your absence. Perhaps my loud shouts had offended you. Perhaps you felt you'd earned the right to move into the rest of the house. Some weeks later, I was having coffee in the house next door with my elderly neighbour when she asked me a question that took me by surprise. Do you feel happy in the house? Very. Why do you ask? Well, apparently there was a terrible tragedy in there years and years ago. A fire, a real inferno, and the father of the family couldn't get to his little daughter through the, the flames and the smoke. He had to watch helplessly as Portia burned to death. So that's what happened, I heard myself say. Then seeing the startled expression on my neighbour's face changed it to, yes, I, I can imagine. They say, she went on, that that family, probably the first to live in the house after it was built, was terribly unlucky. Their oldest son died while mountaineering, which is why, I believe, the house was called Mountview, to show the family always kept him in their thoughts. Mm. No wonder you left. How insensitive we must have seemed, changing the name. It makes me all the more grateful to you. Of course, I still have questions. Why did you only appear to me, never to the rest of the family? And why did I feel so strongly that something was wrong the day you left the back of the house and I saw you in the dining room? You'd never returned, and I shall never know the answers. And now it's our turn to leave. After many happy years in Lane End, and with the girls on the point of leaving home, we sold to a young couple with a family, much as we were when we first moved in. And you? I only hope that your absence from the house is a good sign, my nameless, frock-coated friend, that it was your grief that chained you to the house, and that was why you called us to come here. Wherever you are, I wish you well, and earnestly hope that by saving someone else's child from the terrible death suffered by your own, you've been able to leave your prison forever, the scene of your almost unbearable loss, and find peace at last. The end. Oh, that... What a great story. <laughs> right? This book is fantastic. I know. This podcast is made possible by our supporters on Patreon. At the $5 tier, you get a personalized and unique spooky story of how you became a camper read on the air. And at the $10 tier, you will also receive a high-quality enamel pin with our logo. Visit patreon.com ssfc or visit the link in the show notes. That was written in by Angela Vale. She's a writer. She writes stories and poetry. She's also a trained actress. And she has appeared in a few things, including playing Mother Peter in Once a Catholic, <laughs> which I think played on the West End. <laughs> oh, English folks. They really do write a lot of theater and TV mm. shows about clergy people. <laughs> it's true. There's always a clergyman. Yeah, and they are like Father Brown, the main character is the clergy mm. guy and and then there's another show where the it's a woman who's the new pastor. It seems like the the Anglicans, those the the 
those church leaders play a bigger part in their lives than they do in American yeah. television. <laughs> I cannot imagine an American show where the leading character is just like a man who's a priest. <laughs> <laughs> Who solves crimes. I'm like, no, usually no. it's just the other way around. He would be <laughs> investigated for crimes. Um, but yeah, Angela Vale, excellent writer. Oh, fantastic. This story is called Diving into the Supernatural by Kevin Wright. It was a hot August day in Kingston, Ontario. The sun beat down relentlessly, all but broiling me in my neoprene wetsuit. I wiped away a bead of sweat as I made final adjustments to my gear. In just a few short minutes, I would cool off in the chilly waters of Lake Ontario as I descended 80 feet below the shimmering surface. We were moored above the wreck of the George A. Marsh, an old three-masted sailing schooner that made its final journey across the lake on August 8, 1917. I've dived on wrecks many times before, but this was my first visit to the marsh. The pre-dive preparations went so smoothly, almost routine. Little did I know this would wind up being unlike any dive I had ever experienced. After a final equipment check, I positioned myself on the gun on the gunwale of our small boat, took a breath from my regulator, and rolled backwards into the placid waters of the big lake with a gentle splash. Surfacing quickly, I gave the signal that all was well and swam to the mooring line where I would wait for my dive buddy to join me. Bobbing ever so gently on the surface, I thought about how unusually calm the waters were today and how different it must have been on that fateful night almost 84 years earlier when the final voyage of the George A. Marsh ended on the muddy bottom. Slipping beneath the surface, the hiss of air venting from my buoyancy vest was abruptly (laughs) replaced... The hiss of air venting from my buoyancy vest was abruptly replaced with a watery silence, interrupted only by the sound of my own breathing during the slow descent to the grave of the once-proud ship. Looking up, I watched as the surface grew dimmer, and ever more distant until it faded away into a brown nothingness. For several minutes, we would be in that zone of emptiness, where the six to ten foot visibility permitted us to see neither the surface nor the bottom, making the thin nylon mooring rope our only proof of the existence of a world beyond the range of our own vision. After After what seemed like an eternity, the form of a ship slowly materialized beneath me. Initially just a distant specter, the ship grew clearer and clearer until finally I stopped my descent, coming to a hover just above the deck of the good ship George A. Marsh, claimed by the lake so many years ago. Pausing for a moment to take in the ethereal scene unfolded before us and to become acclimated to the icy cold water, we made our way slowly back across the hull. The ship was exceptionally well-preserved, almost intact, with nothing to indicate that it had been there more than 80 years, except for the thick colony of zebra mussels and other marine life that encrusted every inch of its wooden surface. Fish, surprised by our sudden intrusion into their watery world, darted past and then cautiously circled back to investigate our presence. Looking to my right, I saw my dive buddy deeply engrossed with a line that led from one of the deck cleats over to the side. As he carefully studied the tangled rigging, I made my way to the back of the 135-foot-long ship. We shouldn't have become separated like that, especially on an unfamiliar wreck. However, we were both highly experienced divers. In fact, both of us were scuba instructors, and I was also a commercial diver. So the buddy system sometimes meant diving the same body of water on the same day. Thus, I found myself alone, exploring the lost secrets of the 19th century schooner, schooner? Schooner? I think it's schooner, that succumbed to the forces of the lake on the stormy August day within sight of its intended destination. Surveying the damage to the battered stern, I reflected on the tragic irony. This ill-fated ship had crossed the lake, riding out the brutal storm, only to perish within two miles of port. Working my way forward, I came across one of the open hatch covers exposing one of the three cargo holds. I peered inside curiously, my dive light reflecting off fine silt particles suspended in the turbid water as a school of small fish hovered above the nearly full load of coal sitting undisturbed after so many long years. As I continued my journey back to the bow, bow, 
back to the bow. I paused at each hatch and, opening it carefully, looked into the darkness while trying to steal a glimpse of the history that lay before my wandering eyes. Finally, I came across a large hatchway leading below deck. In a momentary lapse of judgment and throwing safety to the wind, I decided to penetrate the wreck. Checking my air, I saw that I had just less than 2,500 PSI remaining. I took a compass bearing and then carefully descended, headfirst, into the inner sanctum of the ship. The interior was a paradoxical scene of chaos and order. Debris was strewn about on the silt-covered floor, yet pans sat undisturbed on the stove. It was totally dark inside, except for the trickle of dull light coming from the open hatchway and the powerful but narrow beam of my dive light. As I looked around, exploring what remained of Captain Smith's sea-going home, I suddenly developed a sense of general unease. Fearing an equipment problem, I immediately began to check my gear, only to find everything in perfect order. My nervousness grew, my breathing quickened, and I realized that the water was quite cold, much colder than I had noticed before, causing me to shiver despite my thick wetsuit. The light slipped from my shaking hand, fell to the deck, and went out, leaving me in total darkness. I suddenly sensed I was not alone, even though I had noticed no fish or any other sign of life inside the schooner. On the verge of panic, I frantically groped for my light, yet my hand found nothing but silt. Forcing myself to calm down, I retrieved the backup light from my pocket in my buoyancy compensator vest. Inexplicably, this light, which had worked fine when I tested it earlier, no longer functioned. Going back to my vest pocket, I quickly pulled out a Silume light stick, snapped it, shook it, and was rewarded with the expected comforting greenish-yellow glow. Using the light of that chemical glow stick, I found the dive light I had dropped earlier, right next to what appeared to be a child's foot. I gasped with shock at this unexpected discovery, and thinking I had found the remains of a modern drowning victim or the body of a murdered child hidden away deep inside the submerged wreck, I debated whether I should look up, doubted that I wanted to see the grisly spectacle before me. Tentatively, cautiously, my eyes traveled slowly up the leg until I saw the pale form of a boy about seven or eight years old. His clothes were not waterlogged, his hair didn't look wet and he was standing firmly on the deck without any appearance of floating. As my disbelieving mind tried to process this bewildering scene, the figure of a woman appeared. She looked to be in her thirties with long flowing hair and a long skirt, and she cradled a baby in the crook of her arm. Like the boy, she appeared quite normal, but pale, and she didn't seem at all wet, despite being more than eighty feet beneath the water. We stared curiously at one another, my eyes riveted to these mysterious figures, as if paralyzed, I was transfixed by the manifestation of this unusual sight, and yet strangely relaxed. I had no sense of time, and didn't even think to look down at my watch. Then, sudden, then suddenly, the woman took the boy's hand, he smiled at me, and they were gone. Still not sure of what I had just seen, the sense of panic returned. After checking my air gauge, to my horror, I found that I was just over 200 PSI remaining. I hurriedly exited the wreck, swam to the mooring line, and ascended as quickly as I dared to without risking decompression sickness. Arriving at 15 feet, I hovered at the decompression safety stop until my remaining air supply was exhausted. Quickly swimming up the final 15 feet, I broke the surface under the bright midday sun and gasped in a big breath of fresh air. Safely back on the boat, I was visibly shaken and recounted to others this strange tale. Despite having logged thousands of dives, I have never encountered anything like it before or since. I initially chalked it up to purely physiological factors. Perhaps it was a case of nitrogen narcosis, the so-called rapture of the deep. That's a fucking dope love phrase that. i love rapture of the deep uh, <laughs> our new band name i'm my perfume i'm th- that's that's it <gasps> though i had never experienced narcosis that intense or at such a relatively shallow depth maybe it result of maybe it was a result of cold stress pressure claustrophobia isolation darkness or a combination of these factors However, later that night, while telling the story in a local waterfront bar, another, more ominous explanation was offered. According to some of the older locals, grizzled old sailors, 
This was not the first time that ghostly apparitions had been seen on or around the wreck of the George A. Marsh. It seems when the ship went down on August 8, 1917, she took 12 of the 14 souls aboard to to their deaths. Those killed included two men, three women, and seven children, one of which was an infant. Rumor has it that to this very day, Captain Smith, his wife, and five of their children still stand watch aboard the three-masted schooner George A. Marsh, 80 feet beneath the surface of Lake Ontario. The end. Spooky. This was written by Kevin M. Wright, who owns a marine construction corporation, a commercial diving company based in upstate New York, and he also teaches scuba. So he's a very, very experienced uh, water guy. This guy knows <laughs> knows what's up. Uh, <laughs> oh, scary. Yeah. I'm developing a real fear of shipwrecks and deep under the water stuff. I think if... You don't like fish, If right? there was no... I'm fine with fish. I don't like... Uh, I mean, I would say I have an appropriate full body a response to large marine animals mm. um mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm not gonna say it's a fear because it's fully rational uh True. but yeah when i the idea of like being in murky midwater and seeing something there's Mm-mm. something large like looming or coming towards you i i am really really drawn to it and i'm really really panicked by it um i if i if there was an experience where i could turn off my anxiety and my panic to do something i think it would be to scuba dive because Mm. the i i'm the type of person that likes to stay in the bath for like two hours like i'm the type of person that (laughs) likes to like be like a crocodile when i go into like a pool i like to go i like to go into pools on like very cloudy days (laughs) have the water like just the top of my head visible just so that I can breathe out of my nose because I just like to I just like to I get that just be like be a creepy water creature um I just really really like it uh I just like the experience of feeling submerged by water and I like it when my hearing goes like like oh you're crazy I just really like that. It feels great and it feels almost more comfortable to me than existing in this oxygenated world. Um, But I'm also a water sign with tons and tons of water all over my chart. And I just like would feel more comfortable submerged at any given time. I love that for you. Thanks. I'd really love a hot tub. <laughs> oh, hot tubs are cool. I know they're hard to maintain, but I just feel like it would be worth it. I, I really, I just want to be the two eyes that are slow, <laughs> like the two yellow eyes in the distance. <laughs> like I want to, I want to be on a lily pad. <laughs> <laughs> a lot about you last time i learned the type of rides you like in amusement parks today i'm learning you want to be a frog (laughs) (laughs) okay this one is called a venice ghost story it's our first from italy it's by nancy spavento who is australian but she lives there let me just get into the australian mood you're terrible muriel I'm never going to get married. Never. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) The Australian accent is something you just have to sort of slowly get into and then it's sort of natural and then it's, it's just easy. And then you just, you know, it's, it's easy. It's, it's breezy. It's Australia. All right. As a dewy eyed newlywed, I'd moved to the town. My husband, Giovanni came from none other than the romantic city of Venice. Here I began a new, brand new life, gradually easing myself into the social scene, thanks to my work as an English teacher, which led me to mix with Venetians from all ranks of life and social class, right across the board from talented glass workers to pastry cooks, stevedores, and professors of medicine. It was exhilarating working out different ways to communicate with such a range of people, and it opened many new doors for me. 
My life quickly became a whirl of thrilling engagements as the legendary Italian hospitality became reality, and my husband and I were guests of honor at many a dinner in the Venetian Palazzo. Mm. Oh, Nancy. A dream. Certain Australians are just travel Australians, and she's obviously one of them. There's just a certain type of British person and Australian person that's just like, you know, I've talked about it before, like he's very tan and wears cargo shorts mm. and it's just like mm-hmm. always out in the world. And, th- you know, this is <laughs> she's one of those. One balmy summer evening this year, a good few years since my arrival in town, we were returning from a late alfresco dinner. Ugh, shut up, Nancy. Mm. At a- <laughs> <laughs> On our friend's magnificent roof terrace in the leafy square, Campo San Giacomo dell'Orio. Oh my god. It had been a memorable event with plenty of laughter and high spirits. We took our leave well after midnight, though things were still raging. In true Venetian style, the two of us were travelling by rowing boat, a slender wooden craft known as a sandolo. 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 I don't know. With just enough room for an oarsman aft and a passenger seated for whose responsibility was to hold a torch and act as a navigation light, warning other boats of our presence. In addition to the marvellous atmosphere and smooth dark water gliding by, it meant moderately relaxing postprandial exercise. Oh, shut up, Nancy. Oh, I'm s- God, I'm Nancy. sorry, but... I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just wish I were there, Nancy, so screw you. <laughs> I bet you loved your postprandial exercise. Go back to pulpit spit where you belong. So, without the worry of being pulled over for a breathalyzer test, most evenings we would scull along the quiet waterways and moor right outside our home. That particular night, Giovanni was doing the lion's share of the oar work, as the standing-up rowing technique means you need a good sense of balance. Not my forte, especially after a series of superb wines. Oh my god. (laughs) Nancy! We decided to take a different route back to enjoy the cool night air, and headed along a side canal, Rio di San Zan de Gola. De Gola. I don't know... I don't know enough about Italian and how they do their pronunciations. I just know in my deep Italian spirit that this woman is annoying. It was especially peaceful, quite a contrast to the chaotic party we'd just left. I was settling down on a cushion at the front of the boat when all of a sudden it felt as though we had entered a bank of fog. An eerie, damp chill spread over us both, and I wrapped a shawl around my shoulders but couldn't help shivering all the same. It must be a trick of the wind channeling through the narrow canals, we imagined. Apart from the tinkling splash of the oars as they dipped into the dark water, the only other sounds were the odd gentle meowing of a lone cat and the soft calls of a seagull that padded around on the water in in search of scraps in the evening once the heavy boat traffic had gone. Or so we thought. Hmm. The cries became louder and more persistent the further we penetrated the ever-darkening waterway and began to sound like the smothered cries of children. Plaintive, thin voices could be heard uttering the words barely distinguishable. Ayuto! Ayuto! Help! Help! How could this be? All around were forbidding walls of decrepit buildings, which seemed to be growing higher and higher. Not a sign was there of an opening or alleyway, let alone a window. We looked at each other in rising alarm, without speaking a word, while Giovanni increased his rowing efforts. My hands were trembling, and the torch I was clutching jumped around, causing a weird effect of faint, unworldly lights reflected off the water. 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 And doing doing nothing to reassure us, as the spine-chilling calls gave gave no sign of ceasing. Thankfully, it wasn't that long before we emerged into the brighter lights of the broad expanse of the Grand Canal itself, and we breathed sighs of relief to be away from those scary sounds and unsettling atmosphere. As the current was strong enough here, we pulled over to the side, closed the ferry landing stage of close to the ferry landing stage of Riva di Biasio before the final leg home. Though it scared me at the time, I didn't think much more of the incident, and hesitated telling friends as I was afraid of being ridiculed as a hysterical foreigner. Honey, Nancy, let me tell you something. 
you cannot out superstition a Venetian. Mm. <laughs> it's not mm. going to happen. <laughs> if you're telling people that you heard the spooky cries of Italian children to another Italian, they're going to know more about that than you. Yeah. No one is going to call you a fucking hysterical foreigner. Are you kidding me? Until some months later, when we were indulging in another... Stop, stop, Uh. stop, miss. Eat, pray, love, enough. (laughs) You have got to, with the indulging and the palazzo, and you've got to stop. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, she has to stop. (laughs) (laughs) And our habitual Sunday lunch at my mother-in-law's. Signora Elsa was commenting on how things had changed in Italy in general and what it meant to grow up in Venice in the animated Rialto market area where the family had a vegetable stall. Life had been good, she said, despite the shortage of food, as there were few restrictions on the children. Just the odd out-of-bounds rules like keeping away from boats and not hassling the shopkeepers. I feel like those are generally the rules we still have for children. Yeah. Keep away from the boats. Don't hassle the shopkeepers. (laughs) parenting advice solid parenting advice it works from Mesopotamia to now these are the (laughs) rules for children reminiscing further oh reminiscing further Mm. Elsa happened to mention that she and her companions would never play in the vicinity of the Grand Canal embankment Riva di Biasio when I pressed her for an explanation, the old lady confided that the parish priest had issued a dire warning concerning evil forces. My immediate rational explanation for this was as a preventative measure to stop them from drowning in the infamously strong currents at the turn of the tide. Oh, Nancy. <sighs> if only Italian Catholicism were so simple as simply being a, <sighs> a way to get children to not drown. Then the strange sounds from that summer evening came to mind. My curiosity aroused, a few days later I found time between English lessons to pay a visit to the library to read up on the local history, and, lo and behold, uncovered the terrible tale of Biasio, a butcher in medieval Venice. He did a roaring trade in the flavoursome sausages for which he was renowned, until a customer complained to the authorities that he'd found a segment of a human finger in one. It turned out to belong to a child. An investigation revealed that he had, in fact, been concocting his wares using the flesh of the young children he enticed into his premises with promises of sweets. Okay, Sweeney Todd. (laughs) Literally. Unsavory... This is worse than Sweeney Todd. Yeah. Unsavory remains were soon unearthed in his cellar. The authorities promptly escorted Biasio in chains to the scene of his crime, where they unceremoniously chopped off his arms. There was, this was followed by beheading and quartering in St. Mark's Square. Needless to say, his butcher's shop was completely razed to the ground by enraged citizens. Nothing at all remains today. But guess what else I discovered in the accounts? It all happened in the year 1503, exactly 500 years ago. So were those pathetic voices and cries for help we heard that summer even <laughs> that summer evening those of Biasio's tender aged child victims, or just the distorted echo effect common across the water after dark, as the locals would have it? We shall never know. But if you visit Venice and indulge in the palazzo and the alfresco dinners, then maybe you too will have this spooky experience. Spooky kids. I love that. Venice has such a freaky history. And I feel like Italy itself, maybe it's just like Poe's story, the cask of Amontillado. Like, I'm like... Man, if you were to look into the cellars of all of the fucking oldest buildings in Italy, you've got to find some fucking guy dressed in a masquerade mask who has been bricked up in a wall. Like, that's just, it just has to be there. It has to be everywhere. There's a lot of bones in every cellar. I mean, yes, but I feel like these Venetian ones in particular are wearing, like, spooky masks and they've got, like, cloaks and they, they you, you know, you know. I know, I know. Just like I Italian spookiness in general is just like so sexy and interesting 
and I I just I just adore it. I just adore it. It's <laughs> I just love it. Um, they've got a particular brand of. You know, like, I feel like an Italian ghost is literally, like, yeah, these, like, poor children who were turned into sausages, um, which unfortunately oh. seems to be something that has been documented in various countries. Oh. Uh, you, We've told, <laughs> obviously, in England, Sweeney Todd, that's, like, mm. not real, but, you know floating around and then you told Inspired me about something you told me about the french story where the french innkeepers were like killing people and using them for meats and stuff that was the bloody inn episode yes, right because bloody inn. yesterday i or day before i found the board game in a board game shop <gasps> we have to play that shit uh and then here in italy so obviously that's like a more <laughs> european <laughs> it's European <laughs> style of child murder. It's a little European style of child murder. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of like gray ladies and type hauntings in England and in Italy. It's more like uh, this was a count who <laughs> you know had had something to do with the government and the plague and the poor people, but he was one and bested. Like I don't know, it just seems. I agree. Sexier. There's something sexier about the ghosts in Italy. I mean, come on, ladies. You get it. I feel like I associate it with very, like, vampire-y vibes, and that's just naturally sexy. So I had these opinions. I'm going to say I had these opinions before I saw any any piece of work that Anne Rice ever had her hands oh. on. But that <laughs> interview with the vampire shit definitely re- oh. reinforces. Um, but these things, they existed before. And I've been to Italy. It's like spooky. And <laughs> there's, just, there's just like like stone facial like masks, like angry gargoyle-like oh, no. type faces just like on the walls of the don't buildings, like, just like, like around. Like it's just a good, That's sexy cool. place to die. <laughs> Speaking of Anne Rice, apparently in one of her 500 Interview with a Vampire uh, books, mm-hmm. there was a moment where a vampire was looking at their at like a car dealership, an abandoned car dealership, they were looking at a car, mm-hmm. and that was a real place in Louisiana that recently had gotten bought by a Popeyes, and they were gonna put a Popeyes there. Mm-hmm. And she went to the local paper and caused a ruckus, talking about how awful Popeyes is and how this place is a landmark. It it's so historically important because she wrote about it. And it should remain an abandoned car lot forever because of her. An and she's so abandoned car lot. You're trying to get that said as a historically significant place in New Orleans, in Louisiana, please, honey. Yeah, please take a seat. And I was recently watching The Simpsons, and they went. Uh, Sideshow Bob gets out and starts living in a in his storage unit, and the sign for the storage unit in like rainbow letters said the most depressing place on earth (laughs) (laughs) i love that me too so accurate storage units uh the most depressing place i've ever been in my entire life was an impound lot in new orleans so i'm sure (laughs) that this abandoned fucking place would be improved (laughs) by a popeyes that impound lot would have been much less depressing as a popeyes (laughs) It would have been less depressing as a place where children were made into sausages. That that is it was just I stand by that. Alright, I'm gonna tell one more story oh. and it's gonna be sad and meaningful and oh. I might cry. Okay. And it's called the shoe thief. <laughs> okay. oh, by Jade Walker. <laughs> I'm ready. I have. I'm ready. I have ugly feet. It's true. This is not me, Katie, speaking. I have gorgeous little feet. I've talked about it on the podcast before, but this is my memoir. This is this is Jane. <laughs> she says, "I have ugly feet. It's true. I had great feet until I was about four years old, and that's when I decided to become a dancer." 
ballet, tap, acrobatics, jazz, modern. I took classes for years, all with the hope of becoming the next Debbie Allen or Mikhail Baryshnikov. All those years at the bar, studying my movements in front of an entire wall of mirrors, damaged my feet into the mess they are today. In my teens, I had two foot surgeries, both of which left scar tissue. Not a pretty sight. Needless to say, I don't wear open-toed shoes or those cute strappy sandals women are so fond of in the spring and summer. I don't get pedicures and I wear socks all the time. Shoes are my friends. My ugly feet have rarely been spied. I'll occasionally show them to a boyfriend. Occasionally, bitch. How are you hiding them Uh, from your uh, (laughs) lovers? What the fuck? Socks 24-7. Weird. Ugh. (laughs) But only after I'm sure he's fallen in love with me. I tricked you. (laughs) Parentheses. And thus can get past my whole disinterest in toe sucking. (laughs) Oh, Jade. Why did you include that? (laughs) That's in print now. That is in print in my hands, Jade. And now hundreds of people will listen to that. Also, is every guy you date interested in sucking your toes? What a horrible, what a curse. (laughs) Uh, My best friend Amy saw my feet too, even though she only saw them after years of companionship. Bitch. Honey, all feet are kind of ugly. So imagine, We're free. literally. So Stop proudly. Imagine my surprise when, in 1999, she stole my shoes from me. I was particularly <gasps> shocked by this act because she'd been dead for several days when it occurred. Oh. Okay. Ames and I used to visit this tiny beach in Florida called Gulf Stream. Whenever we wanted to unstress or unburden our souls, we'd visit this private oasis on the Atlantic Ocean. Normally, she'd take off her shoes. She had perfect little feet. (laughs) And we'd walk down the sand. We'd rock. So fucking stupid. We'd walk down the sand to a rock dune. This rock sticks out over the ocean and is fairly uncomfortable to walk on when barefoot. Of course, it was never a problem for me, since I always wore shoes. We'd scramble up the rock and look out over the horizon. We'd cry and hug or laugh over the idiotic things we'd done when Triple Dog dared. Once in a while, we'd rid ourselves of the trappings of love or dream of a shared future, a future that was never meant to be. I'm not a religious person, so when Amy unexpectedly died, I simply couldn't deal with all the farewell trappings of eulogies and viewings. Instead, I paid my respects to her parents and then drove out to the beach. I walked down to the water and across the sand over our rock dune. It was warm and sunny, typical Florida weather for a February, and I found myself angry at Mother Nature for not providing more appropriate weather. Perhaps I was just mad at the whole situation. I stared at the horizon and silently called to her. I demanded an explanation for her death. She was only 28 and we had huge plans she needed to fulfill. Who was going to fly to New York City with me for the millennium on New Year's Eve? She and I had been planning that trip for eight years. Who was going to be my maid of honor when I eventually got married to the perfect man? Who would be there for me to shock and surprise and share the secrets no one else would understand? The sounds of children playing, dogs barking, and water rushing towards the shore faded as I stood on that rock and silently screamed into the ocean's ear. Grief overwhelmed me, but I simply wasn't able to exercise the sheer agony I was feeling. I needed something to ground me, some way to keep from having a breakdown. I opted for physical pain, so I took off my shoes and tenderly placed my ugly, sensitive feet onto the rock. The stones were uncomfortable, but not unbearably. Once I realized that I couldn't even share this moment with her, this silly little moment of independence from shoes, I started to cry. Amy was never one to let me dwell in depression. As someone who had endured a kidney transplant, years of painful medical procedures, and more than one broken heart, her mere presence always reminded me of how small most of my problems were. No matter how much my life would suck, hers was always worse. Somehow, she never let it stop her from smiling and living life. The tears fell in continuous streams, and I was blinded by them. So blinded, in fact, that I didn't see this huge wave heading straight towards me. It crashed over the rock and into my body, almost knocking me off balance. With one hand, I reached down to pull my wet skirt away from my calves. The other, I used to wipe the tears from my eyes. 
and was just in time to see the waves steal my tennis shoes and pull them away. I couldn't jump in after them. It was simply too rocky and dangerous. Instead, I was left helpless, friendless, and shoeless. I was also quite stunned to hear the sound of Amy laughing. She had this infectious giggle, and I heard it clearly in the ocean breeze. (laughs) My skin prickled, and I knew her ghost was there. As always, because she laughed, I did too. And with that shared chuckle, I said farewell. I constantly mourn for Amy. Not a day goes by where I don't think of her. Or wish her to be on the other end of a phone. (laughs) So much has changed in my life since she died. And yet, I would trade it all for just one more day with her. Some people are never able to get past the death of a loved one. They wear their grief like a shroud and find it difficult to cope with the regular tasks of living. If I were to behave in such a manner when she was alive, Amy would have pummeled me. Or more likely, she would have forced me into the car with the stern prescription of a few hours at the beach. Knowing Ames, she would have stolen my shoes so I couldn't (laughs) leave until I felt better. The end. I told you. <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> oh my god. It's been a while since we've done a touching ghost story. Yeah. It's really sweet. I love you. <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> well, I'm gonna do a Patreon story after we calm down a little bit. Okay. Um... Thank you so much, Brian, for sending this wonderful book. That's fantastic. Yeah, I really love it. And there's tons and tons more stories. Yay! Yeah, so I can I can do a few more of these types of episodes if oh, you enjoy hearing them. I do. I do. Well, they all make me think about children's sausage and feet in tears. Some of them will make you annoyed at Australians. So <laughs> it's for the common good. So... I'm going to do a Patreon story. These are stories that I write about people who support us on Patreon. I read a little ditty about how they came to camp. And the last episode I did, we were visiting a rival camp in Seattle called Camp Rainier. Uh, and now we're going to find out what happens next. So we had just followed Bryce's Jeep into the woods for a while until it opened into a clearing with the sign Camp Rainier. Camp Rainier was surrounded by pine-stubbled hills. In the distance, a large lake twinkled, holding kayaks and canoes around its edges. Bryce bounded ahead of us in his stupid little strappy rubber sandals. (laughs) He clapped his hands together. Well, look around all you like. I actually have to go be a valuable resource to my campers. Uh, Speaking of of which, who's looking after Camp Roachoke right now? Mothman? No, I sneered. A very respectable man named Tom. Tom Moore. Thomas Moore? The escaped murderer? (sighs) Well, if you must know, he's currently at the bottom of a pit near our vegetable garden, and he's shown more excellent leadership skills and panache from down there than you ever have at ground level. (laughs) Bryce scoffed. Right, I'll have to remember that. Um, we'll take a- take a good look, ladies. Ta-ta. Morgan and I wandered out to the lake and looked over at the water while campers in bright t-shirts crisscrossed the clearing behind us. A large bright tail fin slid above the surface and back down, feet away from the shore. We both gasped and scooted backwards on the sand. What the fuck was that? I asked. Tuna? Morgan offered. But with a large splash, our tuna theories were dashed as a woman popped out of the water. Whoa, how have you been holding your breath? I demanded. I haven't been, she said, pointing to the gills on her neck. Oh, no, Morgan said. You've never seen a mermaid before? She revealed her tail above the water. Oh, we have, Morgan said. Uh, We even have our own lake of magical creatures. Uh, We have a ghost. She's pretty scary. Uh, We have a, a lake monster, but he mostly keeps to himself. And the vampires fly over it in bat form every once in a while. I nodded. I'm Sylvia. You know, there are more of us at the bottom of the lake. I'm sure one of them would love to come back with you. Mermen, too. Oh, yeah? I said, scooting closer to the water. 
Are they hot men? <laughs> Are they like hot mer like have any has anyone ever like called them hot? Morgan sighed, got up and dusted herself off. They're very hot, Sylvia cooed. Some of them even have a sweet but melancholy air about them, and many of them look very Mediterranean. <laughs> okay, well, I don't have... Uh, do you guys rent Scooby gear? I said, scooting further into the lake. It's been a few years since I was certified, um, and that was in Massachusetts, so I don't know if there are like, different laws, but it expires pretty soon, but I think... Hey, Morgan! Morgan had begun dragging me out of the water by hooking her arms <laughs> under my armpits. Katie, come on. We both know how this goes. I went limp as she dragged me through the sand. <laughs> no, I can handle it this time. Katie, no, you can't. I'm not doing the Bahamas again. We're not doing that again. I can handle it. No, you can't. Thank you, Sylvia. If you're ever in Virginia, you know where to find us. Come on. So we extended Sylvia, the mermaid, an, an offer to come to camp. Um, and I was dragged away yet again from an incredible experience. <laughs> it's so funny. We were just talking about how I like to be submerged in water. And the Patreon story happens to be <laughs> you having to drag me out of my certain demise. That is so funny. <laughs> oh, my God. I have a weakness for the mer people. <laughs> All right. If you want to join the the wild tapestry, the saga of Camp Roanoke and our journeys, all you have to do is support camp. Patreon.com. You guys know how to do it. Mm -hmm. You can also email us your ghost stories at letters to camp at gmail.com. You can like us on Instagram and we have a Facebook group called Camp Roanoke Mess Hall where you can hang out and we share stuff paranormally stuff and spooky stuff i recently just shared a video from the travel channels page of a guy who had some pretty crazy paranormal potential paranormal experiences happening in his house Wild. and it's so fun to watch so, so uh yeah really freaky shit so uh join up and and it would be it would be great to have See you yourself. all right thank you so much guys have a spooky night I've haunted subterranean things. Bye-bye.